Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The satellite internet technology called Starlink has provided a decisive battlefield advantage in Ukraine. In China, it's also provided cause for concern. We ask why China's army is worried and why that is likely to lead to a space race in low Earth orbit. And everything old is new again. Our correspondent finds that pinball is enjoying a resurgence. It's not just that it's retro, it's tactile. It's delightfully mechanical. And pinball machine makers are starting to move with the times a bit. First up, though. For much of the world, today marks the start of Pride Month, a time that LGBT people protest for their rights and celebrate their identities. In Uganda, though, you'll find no parties and no parades. Homosexual acts have been a crime since 1950 and punishable with a life sentence. But as of Monday, things got far more dangerous when it was revealed that President Yoweri Museveni had signed a vicious new bill into law. Some same-sex acts are now punishable by death, even so-called promoting homosexuality or renting a room to a gay couple come with long jail terms. The most vocal advocate of the bill, Uganda's parliamentary speaker, Anita Among, frames the law as one of protection from moral degradation, from outside influences. Let's protect Ugandans. Let's protect our values, our virtues. We have a culture to protect. The Western world will not come and rule Uganda. But there's more going on behind this anti-colonial language of Africa's homophobes. There are foreign influences, just not the ones the law claims to address. The supporters of this law make three main arguments in its favour. Liam Taylor writes about Uganda for The Economist. First, they say that homosexuality is a sin in the eyes of God. Second, they peddle false conspiracy theories that gay people are recruiting children in schools. And third, they argue that homosexuality is somehow un-African and is just being promoted by the West. But this law goes disturbingly far. It allows for the death penalty. Why is it that Ugandan politicians feel the need to go to these lengths to, to fight against ideas promoted by the West, as they say? I mean, first of all, it's important to remember that there have always been LGBT Africans. And in fact, the first anti-gay law in Uganda was introduced in 1950 by British colonial policymakers. But despite that history, many Ugandans now see homosexuality itself as a Western import. And that's the same in many parts of Africa. In Ghana, where the parliament is trying to pass a similar bill, the preface of that bill warns about the infiltration of foreign cultures. 
In Kenya, some politicians who want to pass a bill there have described LGBT rights as a second colonization, which they say is designed to shrink Africa's population. Now, of course, that is obviously nonsense. And while it's true that African ideas of the family are influenced by the West, there's also Western influence on the other side of the debate as well, including, crucially, the role of Western culture warriors who are preaching their own values on the continent. What do you mean by that? In what way are they preaching on the continent? So for years now, there's been a constellation of groups that have been building networks and holding conferences in Africa around issues like homosexuality, sex education and abortion. One interesting and relevant example is in March, there was a conference on family values and sovereignty held in Uganda. And the attendees were diverse and from many parts of Africa, religious leaders, youth activists, MPs. They spent the conference railing against homosexuality and other imagined threats to the African family. But one interesting aspect of that was that the programme for the conference was developed with the help of Family Watch International, an American group, and their delegates spoke in prominent slots. They were in the front row in all of the photographs. They met afterwards with President Museveni and his wife. Family Watch International have been organising for about two decades to oppose comprehensive sexuality education all over Africa. They even hold annual training sessions for African ambassadors. It's important to point out that they say they have never supported anti-homosexuality laws in Africa, and they say they oppose several sections of Uganda's law. The blame for the bill definitely lies with African politicians. I mean, one of the politicians who attended this recent conference, a Kenyan politician, he's returned home to submit a bill of his own, which is very similar to the Ugandan one. Why is it, though, that that some groups feel they need to take this culture battle to Africa rather than sticking to the US? So obviously, over the last few decades, there has been a huge shift in attitudes in the West. And so some of those culture warriors now feel that Africa is a potential base for a counter-offensive. The language is very similar. I was talking to a, a Zambian priest who has researched this, and he was telling me, well, looking in America, the conservative right rage against the so-called woke left. In Africa, they rage against the West. All that's changed is the bogeyman. And you look at some of the MPs who are behind some of these laws that are being pushed in Africa, they're incredibly influenced by the rhetoric of the American culture wars. The MP in Kenya, who is behind that bill and who also attended the recent conference in Uganda, is always you know, retweeting clips from American talk TV. There's another MP from Ghana who's behind their proposed law. He travelled to Utah to attend a Family Watch conference there last year. So in a sense, this is a kind of proxy culture war carried out by Americans. So it's not just America. So also at the recent conference in Uganda, there was a small Dutch group which campaigns on these issues. One interesting whisper that is going around town in Uganda is that Russian money helped to oil the progress of the anti-gay bill. That's not yet proven. There's yet, yet no hard evidence of that. But that's certainly something which many people that I've spoken to have told me about. And so now that this bill has gone through, what do you think the repercussions are going to be? So many Western governments have already said that they will consider repercussions. The most important player, obviously, is America, which gives almost $1 billion a year in development aid to Uganda. Much of that is going to healthcare for people with HIV AIDS. And so the Americans are now trying to work out how they can deliver that care and support that care in the context of this discriminatory law. President Biden has also talked about possible visa restrictions for some of the individuals behind the law. 
Of course, some Ugandan politicians, including Asaman Basalewa, who is the MP who sponsored the bill, cite this as evidence that the West is trying to undermine laws that many Africans support. It's the option for us to say, no, 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 because of aid. Let us allow anything to be done in our country. This is about us, it's about our culture, our values. And we really need to coexist. But that coexistence must be based on mutual respect. But whatever Western governments do, the best hope for change is ultimately going to come from LGBT activists and their allies within Uganda. Well, and in what position does this bill put them? And what hope do you have that the gay community in Uganda can reasonably fight back against this? So even before this bill, Uganda was a really hard place to be gay. People have been arrested, blackmailed, denied health care, evicted from their homes. One activist told me that they live in fear and uncertainty every day. But the other thing about the LGBT community in Uganda is that they are incredibly courageous in the actions that they take. They are not backing down. A court challenge has already been filed. A similar law, which was passed in 2014, was struck down by the courts on a procedural technicality. This time, they will probably have to challenge the law on its substance, which might make things more difficult. But there is still hope that this law can be stopped. Liam, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Five, four, three, two... One, ignition, engine full power, and lift off of Starlink 2-10. Go Falcon, go Starlink. Earlier this week, a SpaceX rocket took off from the Vandenberg Space Force Base in California, hauling the latest batch of Starlink satellites to low Earth orbit. 52 new satellites will join an existing vast constellation of them dedicated to providing uninterrupted internet access back on Earth. The breadth of the project has been breathtaking. This was the fifth Starlink launch just in the month of May. And liftoff of Starlink. Go Starlink, go Falcon. And liftoff. Go Falcon, go Starlink. Ignition. And liftoff of Starlink 5-6. Go Starlink, go Falcon. This internet-from-space technology has become a key piece of strategic infrastructure in the war in Ukraine. It's been a source of pride for SpaceX's boss Elon Musk and for America. But for some onlookers in China, it's been alarming. So China is really worried about Starlink. Alice Su is our senior China correspondent and a co-host of Drum Tower, our weekly show on China. They're so worried about it that the People's Liberation Army's newspaper has called Starlink an accomplice of the, quote, hegemony-obsessed U.S. And what is it about Starlink that has the, the PLA so worried? 
So Starlink, as you know, it aims to create this mega constellation of low Earth satellites, and they can provide off-grid, high bandwidth internet access in a lot of places that are hard to reach. And the PLA, the Chinese military, is worried that America will use this project for its own strategic advantages. One of the reasons they are worried about Starlink is because it's proven really tough to jam and because it's already become so crucial to the war efforts in Ukraine. The Ukrainian military is using Starlink for secure communication, for identifying targets, and for uploading videos. And all of this puts Russia at a significant disadvantage. And presumably China is worried not about Starlink's use in Ukraine, but where it might be used elsewhere. So when China looks at what's happening in Ukraine and Russia, it is thinking about its own potential confrontation with the U.S. And if America and China were ever to come to a conflict, that would happen here where I am in Taiwan. Now, Taiwan is an island, right? And it is connected to the world via 14 undersea internet cables. And a lot of analysts you know, in China and Taiwan and elsewhere have thought about what would happen if China did try to invade one day. One of the first things that experts think would happen is that China would want to cut Taiwan off and they would want to cut those cables. In fact, earlier this year, a small group of outlying islands called Matsu, which which belongs to Taiwan, they had their cables cut by Chinese vessels, although it's not clear if it was intentional or not. And when they had their cables cut, they had kind of a preview experience of what it's like to live without internet uh, initially, and then with very, very slow internet. And, you know, that for China would make a huge difference in terms of weakening the Taiwanese people and Taiwanese government's will to resist. So from China's perspective, if Taiwan got access to Starlink or something like it, it would make their invasion attempts much more difficult. But if China is so worried and Starlink has proved itself so useful, why isn't China just building its own rival? Well, actually, China is building its own rival. And it's not just about the fear that, you know, Starlink would be given to Taiwan to use. Uh, When you read the writings in these PLA newspapers and commentaries, you can see that uh, China is also worried that low Earth orbit and this domain of space is yet another arena in which America is trying to establish a dominant presence. They talk about how low frequency orbits and literally the space in space is, is limited and they don't want America to fill up all of it before they can get there. And so the Chinese government has filed papers for its own constellation of almost 13,000 satellites. And recently they established a state-owned company called China Satellite Networks Group Limited or China SatNet, and it is tasked with developing China's own version of satellite internet. At the same time, we've seen that there are numerous Chinese companies that are now working on producing these small satellites for low Earth orbit, and they hope to be able to soon make hundreds of them every year. So this isn't necessarily just about China and America in Taiwan. This is about China and America in space. Yeah, that's right. It's about China and America in space in in this low Earth orbit race. But in fact, that race isn't limited to just the U.S. and China either. Taiwan, for one, is trying to make its own low Earth orbit communication satellites And then you have the British government, which owns a stake in OneWeb. They're about to finish a constellation of 650 satellites. And then you have Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, who has funded a constellation called Kuiper, and it's due to launch its first test satellites soon. The EU is also planning its own system, and so is Russia. So for the world's powers, satellite internet is seen as one of these next big things that is very important strategically and especially, I think, for the superpowers that are anticipating 
competition with one another, they have made this a priority and they see that they need some level of sovereign control. But Starlink is already up there, already providing capability. Do you think that, that China in particular can, can catch up, can perhaps gain advantage up there in orbit? Well, SpaceX has one very important advantage over everyone else, not just China, and that is that they have the world's best system for rocket launches. They have these reusable rockets, and that's especially important for low Earth orbit because satellites in these low Earth orbit constellations don't last very long and they need to be replaced on a regular basis. So SpaceX has the world's best system for that, and they can save a lot of money. At the same time, you know, some Chinese companies appear to be trying to build knockoffs. So I think they will make progress. And I would point out that China does have another advantage when it comes to the space race. So not necessarily in in terms of, you know, whether they can make their own satellite system fast enough, but in terms of stopping commercial providers from giving access to Taiwan, China has this incredible ability to exert economic pressure on people like Elon Musk. He has a Tesla factory in Shanghai that produces more than half of that company's global output and he is being you know heavily flattered and here in Taiwan a lot of officials worry that in a crisis scenario someone like Mr. Musk would definitely be put under Chinese pressure you know not to help Taiwan because then his other business interests would suffer and I think that's not just a concern for Elon Musk that's a concern for any business that is operating in China so In that sense, China has a very big advantage. Thanks very much for joining us, Alice. Thank you. If you enjoy our podcasts, we think you should know about an app from The Economist called Espresso. It offers concise takes on big global stories. The World in Brief gives you the very latest news in bite-sized form updated throughout the day. There are five short articles offering quick reads and analysis on critical developments. There's a daily chart, a fact of the day, a quote of the day, a little brain-teasing quiz. It's a diverse little digest to get you primed for the day in just a couple of minutes. If you already subscribed to The Economist, Espresso is available to you now. But if you don't, go to economist.com slash app to find out more. There's a bar near my house called the Logan Arcade, and on Tuesday nights they have a pinball competition. Daniel Knowles is our Midwest correspondent and is based in Chicago. The Logan Arcade is this kind of fantastic place. It's got perhaps a couple of dozen pinball machines which occupy the most of the space, as well as a whole bunch of old kind of arcade games. There's a whole lot of different types of people, but particularly people who are really into pinball. The last time The Economist actually wrote about pinball, I looked it up, was about 20 years ago. And at 20 years ago, pinball was this dying industry. Essentially, pinball was getting crushed first by video games in arcades, and then the arcades got crushed by home video games. But what's kind of turned around is, you know, Pimple's back again now. And not just at Logan's Arcade. Right. 
at Stern Pimble, which is the last really big kind of manufacturer of pinball machines, you know, they kind of dominate the marketplace. They told me that for them, the real turning point was about 2008. And that basically every year since then, they've had a 15 to 20% rise in the sales of machines. And they're actually moving to a factory that's twice the size of their current one in the Chicago suburbs. And there's an even bigger boom in some ways for secondhand pinball machines, because these kind of vintage machines, they've got so popular that people are paying as much as $10,000 or more for one machine. And a number of people involved in tournaments as well. There's this thing called the International Flipper Pinball Association, which organizes them. They're sponsoring four times as many tournaments, about 8,000 a year, as they used to even just kind of six years ago. So what's behind this massive turnaround for pinball? Well, I think the pandemic had some things to do with it because a lot of people were looking for things they could do at home and that sort of boosted the secondhand market. At the same time, I think it's really just that you have a generation of people, you know, who perhaps were children when video arcades were a big thriving thing in the sort of 70s and 1980s, who now above that age where they have a bunch of disposable income and they want to get back into the things that they were doing as children. Perhaps they want to get their children into it. So they're looking to play pinball machines again. And then you add to that, that basically it's quite well marketed. Pinball has got a lot cleverer. So Stern, obviously biggest manufacturer, they have designed machines now which you can automatically kind of log your scores online. So people can compete. They can see how well they're doing at pinball, not just compared to the other people in the arcade, but to a whole kind of world out there of other pinball players. It's sort of surprising that nostalgia alone would drive this when there is such a variety of games and other entertainments that people can avail themselves of for cheap. It's not just nostalgia, but this is also a slightly different sort of video game, a different sort of entertainment. You have a physical, tactile machine that you can see what the flippers are hitting the little metal ball and, and you know, what bumpers it's targeting and i think that there's an appeal to that in a world where we are so overwhelmed by kind of screen-based entertainment the funny thing is that you know a generation ago pinball really was actually the dislikable worrisome dangerous activity of the past if you go back long enough a lot of states ban pinballs new york city completes a roundup of thousands of pinball machines each valued at about a hundred dollars they saw it as gambling machines and in fact you know, they were completely wrong because the mafia essentially ran a lot of pinball machines in a lot of places. And in the 1940s, the mayor of New York went around literally smashing machines with sledgehammers and sending off the parts to be used as, you know, war material. So it's been this long bringing of pinball into the mainstream that uh, that's still going on. In, in South Carolina, there's still, there are still people lobbying the state to lift a ban on children playing pinball. So it's something that used to be a kind of teenage vice. It's now wholesome activity compared to what's available in some ways now. And so as for yourself, are you into it? Do you compete on those competition nights at Logan's? So I'm really into it. A funny thing for me is that I had only ever played virtual pinball, you know, on a computer screen before I moved to America. And then playing actual pinball machines, I was just quite joyous. I have tried competing. I'm not very good at it, but I'm getting better. And uh, I'm even developing some opinions on the machines. Daniel, thanks very much for your time and have fun out there. Thanks ever so much for having me, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. 
If you're not a subscriber to The Economist, you really are missing out. Dive in with the deal we've got going on at the moment, a free 30-day digital subscription. Just go to economist.com slash intelligence offer or click the link in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.